everyone and for today i'm joined by jb minton we're going to discuss mike nelson but before that i'm going to hand over the mic over to explain everything he does further hi friends jb minton uh published a skeleton key to twin peaks i've uh, been running in the red room podcast for about 11 years now i'm also co-host of the in our house now podcast with the great john thorne spent a lot of time talking and thinking about twin peaks to start off the show, I listened to what you talked about Mike Nelson and one of our episodes of In Our House Now from Season 3, and it's something that actually made me change how I look at Mike Nelson in a lot of ways, even though we don't have that much information. So a lot of this is going to be about how does he get to the point he is in Season 3. And uh, the thing to start off with is that the earliest that I could find for Mike Nelson is uh, a few entries throughout The Secret Dive of Laura Palmer, because you see a potential change in his character as it goes through. Like, for example... One of the things that Laura says is that she refers to uh, the romance between Mike and Donna, which starts at least in the book in 1987, that it reminds her of a chewing gum commercial. I always kind of took it like there's that like kind of like fake wholesomeness of sorts. But then like there's other entries later on where she talks about how she doesn't like the way Mike Nelson looks at Donna. She thinks he's a gross eater. She thinks that the Letterman jacket it kind of like sets off like this ego trip for him. She doesn't seem to like him, but she really does hope the best for Donna. I know that like it's like, not really the best relationship that they have come the original series, but I wonder if you had any thoughts of what that relationship was like in his early high school days with all that in mind. Well, I mean, he, he starts off as a bully and an abuser and a drug user and a drunk driver. Like we, we know all this for, about him from the pilot even. And I certainly knew people like that in high school as well. You know, I, I, I'm Gen X, so I grew up in, in the 1970s, 80s and 90s as a child. And I can absolutely remember that there was something in the zeitgeist around that time where men looked at women, and I'm thinking like boys looked at girls in high school as possession. Your goal was not to have a love affair. Your goal was to sexually conquer you know, that was, that was in the zeitgeist. I'm not saying that's how I lived my life. I'm just saying like, that was a prevalent viewpoint that many American males had at that time. And I feel like that's all wrapped up perfectly inside of Mike Nelson when we meet him. I rewatched the scene of the missing pieces because in, in Firewalk, we just have the Mike is the man, which is a fun line, but in, in the missing pieces, it does say a little bit about Mike because he shows that he has that extra paranoia of things might not go right with, with the drug situation him and Bobby are in. But the more prominently in terms of what you're talking about is that the brief moment they see Laura and Donna, Mike says something, oh yeah, you need a real man or you're too hot, tough to handle. And it definitely ties into what you're saying about where Mike is in terms of that mindset, where even though he's like 17, 18, it's really not the best healthy way to look at a relationship, especially one that's supposed to be like year and a half, two years in, no less. Yeah, I think any anyone from that generation could look at Mike Nelson and think, oh, I know three people exactly like that. Like that that was a real person. You know what I mean? It's strange because when I rewatched that scene from The Missing Pieces, it was almost like, it sounds silly to say, like it's almost like cat calling your own long-term girlfriend, but there's just a way that he presents in that scene and this will carry over and obviously in the original series but it's just very strange when you look at chronologically how that factors in well nobody who loves anyone would speak to him the way that he spoke to Madonna, barking at her physically manhandling I, I would say it's the edge of abuse if it's not actual physical abuse certainly emotional abuse 
before we kind of talk more about Donna, we could also talk about his uh, relationship with Bobby, is that he seems to have a, a strange loyalty. I don't know if it's because they're both on the football team or if there's like a certain friendship aspect, but it's very strange that he's very good to Bobby. Like you never see any actual contentious interactions, but he does, he acts not maybe not inappropriate, but the way he talks to Donna is like, he, she does not get that same treatment. No, she's a dog to him. She's no more than a, than a dog and not even when he likes to pet all that much, it seems. It's, that whole concept of you protect your teammate, that whole sports metaphor. I'm not a sports person, never have been. I'm five foot four, probably weighed 85 pounds until I was a senior in high school. So no one was, no one was coming to me to get on the basketball team, if you know what I'm saying. So I never really got into that element of male culture in America, especially, but there absolutely was that thing where you protected your teammate. You know, that's how I live in Ohio. So if you remember the Steubenville thing with all the rapes that happened in the football team around here, like those teams are built to protect themselves. And then you look at that on the wider, social network that we have and you can understand exactly how we got January 6th. There's a straight line between that culture, Woodstock 99, and people rushing the Capitol on January 6th of 2020. My opinion. Kind of talking about like how he handles himself around Donna, though. It's sort of like that the way he handled himself in a socially acceptable manner is that the way he talks to Donna, there's not a single, even neutral interaction in the pilot. The two I can think of offhand is when he sees her big as gas farm. It's not even a he's concerned about Bobby. It's more of just like you're not doing what I want you to do. Yeah. And uh, luckily, Big Ed is there to defuse the situation. And things that the only other interaction I can think of in the pilot is when she shows up at the roadhouse and the way he grabs her i know that after the death of laura that everyone's kind of in like high emotions but the thing that really makes it unsettling is that how he just feels instinctive and justified in that because obviously big ed comes up and he's gonna again try to defuse the situation but also the fact that like they just start an all-out fist fight okay i guess to compare and contrast like bobby and mike they start a fight in the bar and that's why they're in a holding cell. And then conversely, you have someone like James Hurley where, you know, there's a reason why he's a big name with the whole Laura Palmer murder. But there's a contrast of the type of guys that Bobby and Mike were, the two guys that Laura and Donna were dating compared to Ed Hurley. Yeah, I mean, well, Ed Hurley represents forlorn love. Like, that guy knows love. He suffered for love. And honestly, there's probably no other better character in all of Twin Peaks to put up as the male version of this man's in love and he suffered you know that's why we love ed so much he's the ultimate underdog but then even you even you look at the way leland palmer treats laura when he's not you know possessed by bob he doesn't even treat laura as bad as as uh mike treats donna i mean it really is one of the starkest examples of a man just absolutely verbally emotionally and physically abusing someone in all of twin peaks and i think the thing that makes it interesting is that out of all the teenage characters that are prominently featured on the show he's the one that we know by far the least backstory about because we get a pretty good backstory i, I mean, obviously you get like about laura bobby donna james even ronette who in my episode about her we talk about how she's forgotten but even that you kind of at least see her parents you can kind of get a certain framework of where she is there's, I have no idea where to go with Mike Nelson, like, you know, how this behavior was facilitated or what justified. And of course, maybe we should, I, I could always point out that I'm reading too far what was meant to be just a secondary character. There's no such thing as a secondary character. They're there, right? But at the same time, there he does do a bit of change throughout season two and then season three. So it's at least interesting to see what we know of him before, you know, he goes through changes or their lack of. Well, I would say that Mike Nelson actually has a fully formed character arc when you look at all 
three seasons and, and the missing pieces. So he goes from the abuser we just talked about to being abused in season two. So he is abused by Nadine. I don't, I don't think anyone can convince me otherwise that she both manhandles him. She's verbally abusive to him and she puts him in a subversive place like he had done in season one. So the writers did a great job of pushing Mike through this uh, emotionally distraught arc that by the end of season two, you actually have compassion for him. You should at least. I do mention this in my Nadine episode is that I know how people view this part of season two, like mileage varies for a lot to say the least. But the the thing that's interesting is that they do give him a certain arc in terms of how he handles himself around Nadine, where he's nice enough, then he's begrudging, and then he kind of just goes along with it, but then he has, like, an actual romance for her. I think he falls in love. Like, you know, Mike Nelson falls in love. So how how amazing is that, that they took that character from who we met in the pilot of Twin Peaks to a forlorn, big Ed-type you know, guy who actually falls in love with the woman that Ed wants to get rid of. It's just a, it's a great irony that's built into that kind of love triangle there. Well, actually, it's four people if you include Norman in that. But, you know, Mike Nelson, I call it the gelding of Mike Nelson. So when you geld a horse, you basically cut its nuts off, right? So that is what happens to Mike Nelson over the course of seasons one and two, which, of course, leads us into where we find him in, in the return. One thing that's kind of interesting, and this is more of a contrast of what we see in season one versus season two, is that we, when we see him at the Great Northern, when he's kind of dressed up, and of course the show is a bit of a campy trajectory at this point, but it is still interesting to see how he could just be from like very actively aggressive, and now that he's with Nadine with this superpower strength, where he's actually not only going along with it, but he's actually embracing it, even just like in the most embarrassing manner possible. And by the way, this when I say embarrassing, I don't mean like from the behind the scenes of how we view the show, but like in terms of like in the show where when he's at the Great Northern, a couple of the yeah. high schoolers pick up on him and they start like ragging on him for it. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a great, it really is a great turn, a great character arc. And that, that idea of someone who bullied and used his physical intimidation and his voice to, to kind of push this person down, he can't dominate Nadine. When you can't dominate someone and you have that kind of authoritarian, you know, mindset and you're the one that's being dominated, I think it's, pretty telling how quickly someone will fall into a subservient position. This is kind of cycling back to season one for a bit, and it's a little bit anecdotal too, is that the way Mike Nelson behaved, at least when I started listening to people talking about who they thought killed Laura initially, just based on what we see in the pile in the first season, I remember at least for a period, I saw a lot of people think that it was Mike Nelson, which I, I feel like I can I can see that train of thought because Cooper, he has the whole conviction that Bobby did not kill. But the things with Mike is that he's like way more aggressive in a lot of respects and also in like the background. So I think that's another factor of just like what makes him kind of interesting in that regard of just like where his personality was and how it does shift throughout like all three seasons. Yeah, it's it's very board game-ish, isn't it? That first the first few episodes of Twin Peaks, the in the first season, every character kind of had their motive. You know, and if, if you would have laid them out as playing cards like Clue, it really could have been who who any of them. You know, it could it could have been any of them. And I do think that you know Mike played that aggressive meathead kind of part in the beginning. Well, and this does span throughout like the original series and even the Secret Diary. Is that the other thing I was thinking of is that he's kind of part of like helping dealing drugs in Twin Peaks. But also, at least from what I see in The Secret Diary and beyond a few episodes in season one, it seems like Mike was always secondary in it because, you know, in The Secret Diary, it's always like, you no, know, Laura and Bobby were doing this thing. Or, you know, it's like Bobby was doing this thing with Leo and Mike is really passively brought up. And apart from Mike Nelson being with Bobby when they meet Leo in season one, it seems like that it falls by the wayside. 
and it's like uh, it's just a thing he's not doing anymore and he because even fire walk with me where he says don't tell mike where it seems like yeah it just like that's that line in particular kind of reaffirms the idea that mike just kind of shows up when bobby needs him yeah i think I, I think Mike's greatest hero in the first is Leo. I mean, like that's who he wants to be is Leo. And Leo is another character that dominates and intimidates and is, is really nasty. We're looking into season three for someone like that. It's going to be Richard Horn. There's a lot of similarities between those three characters that I think echo through each season. That's a great point. I never thought of the connection of uh, Leo and Mike because they do have that distinct abrasiveness. In the case of Mike, there's more of that like, Broy type of sports. Uh, Leo was never on any sports teams. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like he's a big burly guy, but not really in a like a high school clique. Like even in high when he was in high school, I couldn't imagine it like that. I, I pictured Leo being like the Def Leppard, you know, poison rat kind of guy outside the mainstream, almost like the the guy in Stranger Things in the in this last. Oh season. Eddie! Like, oh yeah, he's probably like he's like the bizarre world version of Eddie in terms of just like take away the likability and uh, and just make him just vile. Yeah, you pretty much have like the antithesis of Eddie. I, the first episode of Stranger Things when we saw Eddie, I actually kind of thought of Leo. I was like, oh, he's kind of like a Leo type dude. But then they did a really good job of making him affable, and you love the guy, you know. By the end of it, they never really quite did that with Leo, though. No, no. I mean, they they kind of tried doing that. I mean, if we're going with the Stranger Things route, I would say it's almost like Billy from Stranger Things because mm. they start off as just this vile, unlikable, like right out of the gate. And yep. they, they they do the similar thing because in season three of Stranger Things, uh, sorry, spoilers for anyone who hasn't watched it, but uh, Billy effectively sacrifices himself. And Leo does some similar to Shelly Johnson. Because, you know, when you watch, it's like, okay, this guy's horrible. But then you watch, if you watch Fire Walking right after, it's like, okay, I'm just throwing that out there. Like, you, you, I, like it, he did a good thing, but it's, uh, it, this doesn't make up for it. You know, every character should be capable of eliciting compassion. Like there, there are no true evil people. Even Thanos in the Marvel universe has some element of humanity to him, even though he was a crazy genocidal maniac. There was a little bit of logic behind his worldview and no one should ever have that much power, of course. So that's that's the the, the key is like people who use too much power to wield to harm others obviously are, are bad people, but they may have some redeeming quality. This actually does make me think is that um, earlier this year, and this does tie into, I believe is applicable to Mike and Leo, is that Mark Frost, he was on a podcast called Films to be Buried With, they, they were talking about where Leland was coming from. And with Mark Frost, he talked about how evil is a basically a lack of compassion and empathy. And it's it seems so very simple because, you know, when we see Leland in particular, there's just such like a fantastical aspect when we factor Bob into it. But when you look at it through the framework of who Mike Nelson is and Leo Johnson is, there's that lack of empathy that they have where they don't treat their partners well. They don't seem to have a big social circle, more so Leo. But Mike seems like it's outside of Bobby. There's not really anyone else beyond that. Like maybe yeah. there's people that like him, but it's like in a more passive sort of way. I think that in the case of Nadine, though, in the season two finale, when he says that he was actually concerned for her well-being and that he loved her. Did you have any thoughts on where that was in terms of how that was executed or what this meant for Mike's character as it went through? I mean, I, I accept that at face value. I, I feel like anyone can blossom with love. The worst person in the world, if they were mistreated, whatever reasons they have for their behavior, if they had love and affection and compassion poured upon them for long enough, they would blossom. And I accept that at face value. I feel like Nadine was Mike's soulmate in that 
particular instance, you know, in high school, I probably had 10 soulmates <laughs> throughout my entire four years of, of living there. And it's okay. I, I loved each of them in different ways. And that's the thing. Once you've had love, it's not possessive. It's not singular. It's not contained. You know, lo love is, I believe, a force of nature. And if anything, studying and looking at Twin Peaks close enough has only reaffirmed that to me. I actually would agree with that as well, that he actually had like genuine, sincere feelings for her, even if like the whole premise was a bit outlandish. Right. Do you think that from where he is in the season two finale to where we see him in season three, that the Nadine coming to her senses was like a huge hindrance for him? I think it changed his life. You know, I think that based off of what we know, you know, these are milestones in their lives. I feel like Mike Nelson probably never recovered from the loss of Nadine. Uh, and I think, you know, he, he's not a bad man when we meet him. You know, I would argue he, he does bad things to Steven, but I would say, you know, he's married. He's a, he has a wedding ring on in that scene. He has a pile of papers. He does work. He works his butt off. It looks like, uh, not probably the most organized guy, <laughs> not the smartest guy. He never was, but I think he's a pretty competent professional in what he's doing at that bank or loan office or whatever it is they, that they work in. And so he's built a life for himself. You know, that's very clear from that. You know, he, he's become a professional. He's got a marriage and he is now uh, in a position of power to be able to yes or no this guy. We don't see them in season three, so we can't really confirm or deny what their friendship is like. But you think of something, for example, in Bobby in season three, where I've met people where they think that his ascendance throughout that season and just everything leaned up to it is mm -hmm. like a highlight for the whole season. And things that like you find yourself ruined for Bobby, but in the case of uh, Mike, I mean, I know it's just one scene, but I think of it almost because I know people like this where they work at an office job and they want to do something else. They want to do something more fulfilling. Because then with the case of Bobby, he's, you know, doing something that like his father foresaw. And it seems like it's something that he feels like he can get up out of bed and feel better about himself that he's doing right yeah. in the world. And the thing is that, you know, an office job, a lot of cases, it just feels very like oppressive in terms of you want to get ahead, but you, and it provides enough, but at the same time, it's not fulfilling either. I think when we see him in season three, that's kind of where we're at, where you talked about with Steven, where you weren't really too big on how on how he handled himself. And if you did want, you know, of course, you can explain for the audience to, you know, about where you stand on why you feel like Mike should have given him the opportunity. Yeah, I mean, like in real life, if you were to interview someone like that and behave like that, you could lose your job. <laughs> like you can't talk to people like that when you've just met them and you're in a position of authority over their professional career. No one I know would ever have speak to anyone like that in a professional environment. I've worked in offices for 23 years now. So I've never come across anyone who's been spoken to or heard of anything like that, which is great because that's what makes great drama. But when I saw that, I looked, I, I saw the falseness of that interaction. Like this would never happen, first of all. Second of all, what does it mean here? To me, that's the essence of Twin Peaks The Return. It's not about what happens. It's how does it make you feel? As a, as a viewer. And for me, I was like revolted when I saw that because I was like, this kid has come in here. I didn't know who this was, by the way. This kid is, yeah, he's got a wrinkled shirt and, and doesn't know how to tie his tie. And he's definitely, you know, a, a screw up. I mean, he's probably high on drugs. All this stuff was confirmed, by the way. But he made an attempt. He showed up on time. He's ready for the interview. He's got his resume. He's got the tie on. Like he's ready to at least go through the motion of what normal people go through when they seek to better themselves. And 
as uh, he, Mike Nelson is a binary guy. You have one or two ways to, to respond to this. One way is what would happen in a normal world where you, I, I see this kid and they're, they're really struggling with what they're doing. And I become a mentor to them. And I say, listen, you know, Stephen, this is not up to the quality that it needs to be. Let me help. Let me show you how to do your resume. Let me show you the things you need to do in order to get to where you need to go. Because I would like to hire you someday. You're just not ready for this role right now. So let's talk about the college courses you need to take or the things you need to do to brush your resume up, learn how to tie a tie. I can help you with all of those things. That's not how it goes down in the return, however, right? When I first watched the scene, I kind of looked at it just from a, I guess a traditional narrative standpoint. I know season three and traditional narrative don't go hand in hand, but initially I kind of looked at more so that it was setting the precedent that Steven is maybe not the best person off of it. And and this is what I was thinking of is that when Mike, he talks about how this is the worst resume he's ever seen in his life. I was like, yeah, we don't really know what he put on that resume. Because I've been in office jobs where people will go through of like certain applications like, oh, you can't put that on there. We can't have this person. And I know there's a difference between feeling that and then saying it. But in the case with Mike, though, is that where his life was and the trajectory it went is that and it comes back to the whole idea that we don't really know what his life was like in the original series or what's like in season three. But that there, I get the feeling that just the trajectory we've talked about is that he seems like the type of person where his life didn't go quite the way he wanted and he can sustain himself, but that he just kind of reaches like a breaking point of sorts. And this is yeah. kind of just how he is, because there's even that part because when he like when he closes the door, he's like asshole it, which by the way gary hershberger did a really good job of that delivery where it's like it's that very dry humor but it, it does show that it's not just like a front of like trying to be like quote-unquote professional it's just that's kind of who he is at this point absolutely my favorite line in there is the first one when steven comes in he's like okay and he's like yeah well not okay <laughs> i feel like you could just say that a lot in but you gotta ask yourself the absence so, so i always ask myself the question of the absence what if this were just somebody we didn't even know what if it were just some rando that they threw in here as an office guy to establish that Steven is definitely a screw up. He's an idiot. By putting Mike Nelson in that seat, that forces the long-term viewer to bring their baggage with him into the scene. And that matters. That's deliberate. It's intentional that we bring that baggage that we have with Mike Nelson, which is largely emotional because as we've already kind of talked about, we don't have a lot of details. All we are bringing in is our experience of watching this character. We have an affinity for the actor. We've seen his face. It's good to see that he's grown up. And it's hilarious the first time we see that scene. But about by the fourth or fifth time that I watched that, it started to become a little sad to me. You know, it comes back to the whole idea of like office life and then you reach a certain age and how that just takes its toll on you. The thing is that uh, Gary Hertzberg, he does a great job in any facet. I mean, there's some parts actually... I, I, this actually, this is more of a story about Gary Hershberger than Mike Nelson. I'm sure anyone who's listening to this, who's either met me in the last year or who I've talked to on after recording episodes with co-hosts, they're going to roll their eyes. But when I met Gary Hershberger a couple years ago, he was a really nice guy. And I went to a Q&A and no one really called on him for questions. Like, oh man, like he's a really nice guy. I'm sure he would like, you know, have fans talk about stuff. So I go up to his table afterwards and I asked him about the romance with Nadine. And I thought like, oh, did you think it was like a really fun dynamic? Or did you and Wendy Roby kind of think it was a little weird? And he see he was nice about it. But then you could tell on his face that he didn't appreciate the question. Wow. Uh, 
Yeah, he and uh, I think that for him, as bad as Mike was in the first season, I think he liked kind of like that general idea of like that abrasive character. And I think he just, I, if I had to guess, he wasn't really big on the on the shift in tone. Because mm. uh, I think of like with Heather Graham, when she signed on to be Annie, she was like ecstatic to be on Twin Peaks, but a lot of actors were just jaded at that point. So I think that there was just like he he was just kind of in that groove at that moment. But the th- the one that really rubs salt in the wound is that I ended up talking with Rebecca Del Rio for so long that I ended up helping bring her bags or shuttle. So I'm in this elevator and then Eric DeRay's and is like, hey man, what are you doing here? Because if I don't know if you've met Eric DeRay, but he's Never. super nice guy, super personal. But then uh, Gary Hershberger is in the elevator as well, and he kind of gives me this look. He doesn't say it, but with his eyes, he just says, yeah, what are you doing here? So wow. every so every time I see Mike Nelson, like when I do a rewatch, I'm like, man, I angered Gary Hirschberger, and I don't know. It's like, that's funny. I I generally don't like meeting actors. I mean, not that I'm sure they're good people, but like even when I met Cheryl Lee and Ray Wise, I didn't talk about anything Twin Peaks related. I talked I talked with Cheryl Lee about Mother Night. You know, she was in the the Kurt Vonnegut film Mother Night, uh, directed by uh, Bob Weedy, uh, who just did the Kurt Vonnegut documentary as well. And so I had a five minute conversation with her about Kurt Vonnegut the time she met him. And like, I didn't want to talk about Twin Peaks with those people because I don't want them. And I would be the same with Mark Frost or David Lynch. I would never want to talk to them about Twin Peaks, not in a million years, because I don't want them to shatter <laughs> my own experience of Twin Peaks. Like you just don't talk to the artists about their art. It's just not a good thing to do, in my opinion. I think for me, whenever I meet the actors, I look it through the lens. And of course, you know, I when I guess to put it in per full context, I do view that at least 60 or 70% of the original series is all thanks to Mark Frost. Mm-hmm. But whenever I meet the actors, I always kind of think of like what it was that David Lynch saw in them because he always gets something extraordinary out of his actors. It's people <laughs> who you know, they they do it because they love acting more so than the paycheck. I mean, of yep. course, money's always a good factor, but that's always the thing that I'm always just blown away by is that I always want to meet the actors, just see like, you know, what did David Lynch see in them? And, uh, you know, of course, I'll bring up what I see. But for me, that's one of the big factors why I love it. Because, for example, Gary Hirschberger, he's an instructor on acting classes. I hear he's very good, too. I know it's a small role, but I feel like regardless of like how big or small the role is, that Lynch sees something very extraordinary in that person. And uh, the things that, I mean, despite my interaction with them, I, you know, maybe I just picked the wrong topic on the wrong day. But there is something but where you can just tell that he really does care about acting as a craftsmanship and uh, how he wants to, to convey it to people. So, yeah, that's my big takeaway from Gary Hirschberger. And I think that's uh, also kind of like what he sees when he portrayed Mike in any any rendition of Twin Peaks, whether it was like the original series, Fire Walk Me, season three. Uh, yeah, he he just did a great job and on all on all grounds, regardless of what material is given to him. I agree. Yeah, I agree. And that, by the way, it's weird. They were hell bent that an adult was going to have a relationship with a high schooler in Twin Peaks. Like that was going to happen. It was either going to be Cooper and Audrey or it was going to be, you know, Mike Nelson and Nadine or, you know, whatever else they did. I think, uh, yeah, I can't remember any other ones at this point. Uh, but those were like someone was going to get laid as a high schooler by an adult. That was going to happen in Twin Peaks. <laughs> I guess the only way to wind down is that because in the case, usually with season three, there's at least actors who are in the original series in season three. There's at least some sort of an arc you can wind on. But in the case of Mike Nelson, at least from what you've gathered, do you think that he's ever like would learn his lesson? Do you think he would just kind of stay in the office job for indefinitely? I think he's set, buddy. I think I think Mike Nelson is set. You know, he's 
He's making what he's going to make. He's at the pinnacle of his career, maybe past it a little bit. He never left Twin Peaks, obviously. So, you know, this is a, he's kind of a sad figure in many ways. You know, I, I, I leave that scene with a lot of melancholy now, although I can't appreciate the humor in it. The truth is, is that he passed on trauma in that moment. He passed it on to Steven, who went down a very dark path from there. And, you know, he, he even says to Becky, I got some great feedback. That's a total lie. He got terrible feedback. He got nothing that was helpful for him. It was all, you know, taking away. Mike Nelson took away from Steven and sent him out into the world. And the man spiraled down to the point where he ended up, uh, you know, abusing and hurting his best friend's daughter. Like, let's just put that into perspective. So, you know, th this is a man that he probably knew was Becky's husband. And as Bobby Briggs's best friend, I don't know, I, I don't see any kind of relationship with them in, in season three that we confirm, but you would think they would at least still be on speaking terms. There was nothing like, you know, cataclysmic that, that would have ended their relationship that we know about. So he treated, you know, the husband of uh, what is effectively could be a niece of his that way. And it spiraled out and destroyed their family. So, like, that's where we leave Mike Nelson. That's who he is the last time we meet him. My takeaway from it is that I know people like this where they, uh, they think they're... Because, you know, it's like we, in Fire Walk with me where he says Mike is the man. And there's <laughs> a, and if what Laura says in The Secret Diaries true that the Letterman jacket made him feel like a superhero, that he probably did peak in high school. Uh, you know, probably did okay to substandard, like, throughout his young adult life, but then found footing yeah. in an office job and just feels stuck. Like, I know a lot of people like that. And sure. you're you right. It is sad when you see that where they want to do something better with their lives or they realize that their best days have not, not only are uh, behind them, but have been long past them. It is actually a really sad thing to think about. Well, it's one of the themes of the return, right? The passage of time and how things don't turn out the way you expected them to when you were full of youth and vigor, the hope that you would have had. Like, I don't know if I would ever call anything Mike Nelson had as hope, but I would say probably with the Nadine stuff, there was there was a moment there where he saw a future with her and it was a, a positive future and that was ripped out of his hands. And, you know, now we see the results of that 20 years later. With Mike, there's only so many ways you could kind of wrap up his arc, at least what right. we see in season three. But was there anything you want to plug in terms of any shows you're working on or books you're writing or anything that you've had that you'd want people to know about? Yeah, so I'm actually deep into the second edition of my Skeleton Key to Twin Peaks. Now that book was originally written as a charity project. So uh, I published it, wrote it, probably took me three years to, to put it together and there's a ton of like graphics in there where I really do break down. I, I it started off as a study of the time elements of, of the return, like how much time is being spent on every single narrative in every single episode. And when I crunched all those numbers together, I was able to essentially show how Dwayne Dunham and David Lynch were actually edited it down so that what we saw on the screen, you could see the narrative tension between the 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 different you know, narrative elements in the show progress over time. That was fascinating to me. And then I'm like, okay, now I want to do some analysis here. The first pass analysis in the first edition was a spiritual reaction to the show. So when you read the text that's in the, the physical book and I have a copy here on the shelf, that is my spiritual reaction to season three. Now, the last two years, I've been working with John Thorne on the In Our House Now podcast, and we have gone very, very deep on thematic elements of, of the return. And I learned quite a bit uh, working with John and, and under his tutelage. And, and with, you know, he just had a book that came out this week as well. So 
I learned how to think about it in a way and convey my thoughts about what's on the screen in a way that is different from what I had in the past. So I'm doing that out loud every week on Substack right now. Uh, the first four parts and all of the front piece of the book, which is about the first hundred pages are available to anyone who wants to read it. And then the rest is, is for paid subs only. But um, I, it's kind of an interesting model. I'm writing a book out loud in front of an audience. They're able to ask me questions. I'm able to respond to it. I can fix things in real time. I can put videos and podcasts and all kinds of cool stuff in there. So I really just wanted to create a welcoming environment that is judgment-free, that everyone has their space to have their own Twin Peaks experience. But I also wanted to offer up, you know, what, what comes from five years of staring at something so intently that it starts to reveal things that I couldn't see three years ago. That's a great way to go about it. Because um, I mean, of course, there's a ton and I'm sure you can see it behind me. There's a ton of books that I love that uh, that have really I, helped uh, shape how I view Twin Peaks and at least help me at least challenge myself in certain regards. But there's definitely some about being able to write books and be able to have that discourse at the same time, because that's what makes it a lot of fun for me, at least, is being able yeah. to talk with someone is that it's sort of like why I was happy that you came on, because when I heard you talk about Mike Nelson's interaction with Steven season three, it just made me think, I was like, oh, here's a character that I thought I could never really make a dedicated episode about. But mm. the way you described Mike Nelson, the trajectory that he went from the original series to what we see him in the office is that that totally just changed. It was something that never would have crossed my mind because in that episode, I was actually on the side of John Thorne of like how he viewed it in terms of Steven just being a total screw up. But but you, uh, you had a, that idea of like, it just being some just completely different. And I just never want to be that point where I feel like, oh, I know Twin Peaks. Um, you know, right. th that's that, that's a that's a that's something that like no one would ever really wants. Um, and I would never want to turn into. Well, I certainly went through that phase. You know, like you when you when you are under a revelation from art or religion or love or whatever it is, you feel like it's only happening to you. And like, you know, it's so all important and encompassing that it's only happening to you. This is the only way to look at it. And I feel like, you know, when you read some of the things that like Elon Musk puts out there, brilliant guy, obviously, but he has a total lack of empathy. And it seems really pathetic when it's revealed. So if you can't at least inject empathy and compassion into the way you view the art, it's always going to fall flat on some point. And so I feel like it's taken me longer than most people, <laughs> you know, just because I, I live so, so deeply in my own intellect that it's taken me a a long time to crawl out of that and be able to connect properly enough with other Twin Peaks fans that I can respect their space. You know, that's that's happened a lot from my work with John. You know, we, we don't think exactly alike and it's okay. Uh, we give each other space to have our experience. And I feel like, you know, you, you've done that as well by, by your warm welcome here. Um, and it's okay that we don't see things exactly right. The, the important thing is that we give each other the space to have our experience and then meet in the middle, you know, where, where, where things have. And it's okay if we don't agree on everything. It's even better, as a, fact, as a matter of fact. Oh, yeah. But uh, no, I just want to thank you for coming on. This was a lot of great stuff about a character that I generally viewed secondary for a while. But it does actually show, like you said, that there is indeed an arc for him throughout all three seasons and uh, the missing pieces in particular. Mm -hmm. And it definitely establishes a more sympathetic framework to, uh, to a certain degree, even if he was not really that redeemable seemingly from the first season. Right. But he had, he had a long way to go. <laughs> you know, from that pilot, he had a long way to go. Absolutely. But once again, thank you for coming on. And um, yeah, it's, uh, it was really great to talk to you, uh, JB. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate it. Together, forever.